When I found out um, the, the passage I would be preaching on, um, the very first thing I did is I texted Lilia and said, hey, you've got a story, would you share it? And Lilia said yes. Um, and the story Lilia just shared, um, I, I want to tell you all, and I, I don't want you to miss it, the, the thing to me that is so important about this story is, is that even though Lilia is a teenager, this is the picture of Christian growth. We struggle with things. We, we try and control things on our own, and then we give it to God, and we confess it to others, and on the other side of it, we, we move beyond it. But it doesn't happen on our own. It happens because of God and because of community. And, and what happened in her life? I, I was texting her last night because I, this, this moment this year for Jess and I, besides, besides Lucy, it's a highlight for us because she sent this one little text and by the end of the day, a transformation that had happened that was clearly the Holy Spirit at work. And it was a transformation that was two years in the making. And, and so for, for me, it's just this huge moment of joy to, to be able to sit here and to be able to say, that's the illustration. By the end of today, I hope all of you do what Lilia has done here. I hope when you have struggles, you respond the same way. And, and today, we're, we're going to look in the book of Jacob at, at how to understand and how to work through that struggle. If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to open up to the book of Jacob. And, and at this point, hopefully a lot of you are thinking, there is no book of Jacob, right? Okay, the people who are out there nodding are either biblical scholars or have never done a wanna. So um, the, the book of Jacob is a complicated book for me. Um, the main reason is it's not really the book of Jacob, but it should be. You see, the book was written by a guy named James, but his real name is Jacob. The book was written by a guy named Jacob, who his name changed to James, who also happened to be probably the half-brother of Jesus. Can you imagine if Jesus was your half-brother? When you went to school and the teachers were like, I wish you were more like him. When, when he got up to heaven, he's like, I wrote one of the books of the Bible. And they're like, yeah, well, your brother saved humanity. Like, I, I, I joke about this, but at the same time as we talk today, I want to tell you, I want to tell you that it's sad to me that we don't remember his name properly. And I'm going to explain why, because at the heart of it, we're talking about the goodness of God. And one of the things I'm thankful for is that through the goodness of God, our Bible translations are extremely accurate. So even though I'm talking about Jacob, I want to tell you how we got there. You see, it's, it's James, but that first word in the book of James is actually Jacobus. Jacobus, which is Jacob. The name James is actually not a biblical name. Sorry, Jim Smoot. Um, but but the, the name James actually came about because originally in Greek it was Jacobus, and then in Latin, it was Jacobus. And then at some point in later Latin, the etymology of the word, the ba became ma. And then we get to this guy named Wycliffe, who is a Bible translator. Praise the Lord for Wycliffe, because if it wasn't for his work, I don't know that we'd have English translations now, but praise the Lord for the work he began, that we have so many options now. But he translated it James, because you go, Jacobus, and then you decide, well, Yakim, Yakim's a weird name, so I'll, I'll get rid of the ka or the ma. And he didn't like the name Jake, so he went with James. And so that, that's kind of what happened. Now, there are different theories on why this happened. I don't know which one is correct. Um, some people say, well, King James, they named a character after him to butter him up. But, but Wycliffe was way earlier 
than King James. Some people think it's because at that time in church history, people really didn't like Jews, and so they didn't want to give this James guy a Jewish name, but that's silly because, like, the whole Bible Jewish. Um, and, and, and finally, the, the, the final thing some people suggest is, well, maybe it's a way to tell them apart, but the problem is there's a whole bunch of Jameses in the New Testament, and each James in the New Testament is actually Jacob. So we don't know why, but let me tell you, let me tell you, the tradition is James, but the reality is Jacob. And the rest of today, I'm going to talk about the book of Jacob. And the reason is, is because the heritage of this book is a Jew, the Jewish half-brother of Jesus, who by our best accounts, probably rejected Jesus as Messiah until after the death and resurrection. And then after that, repented and became a leading pillar in the early church in Jerusalem. And when he wrote the letter of Jacob, the one that we have in our Bible, James, when he wrote it, he wrote it as a Jewish Christian leader in the early church, writing to a whole bunch of Christians from Jew, the, to the 12 tribes. Who were the 12 tribes? Well, the, the Jewish believers is who he's writing to, who were scattered because of persecution. And, and so the book has a very specific audience, and the author has a very specific point. Our best guess is that the book of Jacob is one of the, if not the first book of the New Testament written. It certainly predates all of the all of the, all the gospels, so all the, all the teachings of Jesus that we see later on, he uses very similar language when he talks about things that we see later on in the gospels. But, but Jacob, this author, this half-brother of Jesus, when he wrote this work, he wrote this work for a very specific reason, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And I want to tell you as I say this, you might be thinking, well, how do I trust my Bible if they can't even get the name of a guy right? Right? I, hope, I mean, maybe you're thinking that, maybe you're not. I don't know. What I think is amazing is that we have Greek manuscripts of what today is in our Bible that helps us follow something that 600 years ago, a name changed to James. Probably earlier than that, but that's the first point where we have a recorded thing of it. But, but even with that happening, our, this ancient book that we study today and is relevant in our lives has been so well-preserved because of God that we can take faith in it today and we can follow back and see the logic of how translators made choices. And I think that's amazing. Before we jump any further, I'm going to pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Um, Lord, we thank you that you are so good. We thank you that a, a brother that we see in the book of John rejected and mocked you that at some point you grabbed hold of him, your spirit worked in him, and, and he became a pillar in the Christian community. We thank you that you work through those who would work against you on their own, and you work through us that we are sinners to follow after you. And I pray today, Lord, I thank you for the testimony of Lilia, the way she went from two years of darkness to confessing and to growing in community. I pray that for all of us here today, we would not think back to our youth and say, I remember moments like that, but we would say, I want more moments like that. I pray we would grow in our maturity and that we'd respond to your spirit. I, I pray right now for everyone here that as we jump in today, that, that they would not settle for, for self-diagnosis, but instead would follow the message that Jacob has for us today. And I thank you that we have that message well-preserved. I pray your spirit would speak through me and you would give us all ears to hear. It's in your name I pray. Amen. I have a complicated relationship with the book of Jacob. I fully intended to preach seven verses today, 
and then I got into it, and I'm sorry. Um, I got to tell you, though, there's a reason I have a complicated relationship with this book. Martin Luther, a reformer. If you don't know who Martin Luther is, he's the most important thing that's ever happened on Halloween that no one but theologians and pastors know about. You see, on, on Halloween, on October 31st, it's Reformer's Day, and, and this man read through his Bible and looked at the Catholic Church in his day and said, what on earth are we doing? Why are we saying you can buy salvation? Why are we doing these things? Why, why do we live this way when I open my Bible? It does not match at all. And so he wrote 95 reasons that the church was far removed from what they should be. And he went to the church on a day and, and nailed them to the door. Thus began, in many people's eyes, the Reformation. This same Martin Luther, that is a pillar to Protestants, a pillar to Reformation, um, when he talks about the book of St. James, the epistle Jacob, he says it's really an epistle of straw. And those are not kind words compared to other epistles. He talks about John and Paul and Peter earlier and says those ones are good, but James has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. And do you know what? In a way, he's right. The book of James, or Jacob, as we're going to keep calling it, this book is a book that I have struggled with my whole life. When I was 16, I worked at a Christian camp where we had to memorize James 1. And do you know what happens when you memorize James 1? If you don't read it the right way, do you know what the conclusion is? The conclusion is, have more faith, do better. That's it. I'm going to show you in a minute. But, but, but Martin Luther read this book and thought, this book does not at all line up with the Gospels because he read it with a certain mindset. And so I'm going to work really hard to explain to you that, that, that mind, uh, the right mindset to read this book. And, and the starting point I need to say is, I think Martin Luther makes good points, but I also think this is a very useful book. This book is not useful for a non-believer, though. It's not. If you are a non-believer here, the main thing we are going to talk about today is double-mindedness. And if you are not a believer, you do not have the Holy Spirit in you. And if you do not have the Holy Spirit in you, you are not double-minded. You're single-minded in a way that the Bible say is not, would say is not good. If you're not a believer here today, what I want to tell you is, is at the end of today, I hope you hear that the message today is a message of turning away from the things we know we shouldn't be. It's turning away from shame and lust and rage. It's, it's turning away from the person that I know I don't want to be, the bad husband, the selfish father. It, it, it's turning away from the wicked person I don't want to be, but I know I can't do it on my own. And if you read James in the right way, you come away at the end of this book saying, I get it. I get how to not live this way. If you read it the wrong way, you come away thinking, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get through this. I'm never going to get through this on my own. I'm going to just skip all of this because we're, we're just going to feel good about that today. So there's some, there's some important things today that we need to talk about. Um, the book of James has an opening. Chapter 1 is the opening of the book of James. Um, and it's like a, an introductory paragraph where James is going to lay out two ideas— Faith and double-mindedness. That's the point of James 1, faith and double-mindedness. Are you going to endure in your faith or are you going to be double-minded? Then the middle of the book is this whole unit talking about checking for double-mindedness. And at the end of the book, if you read it the right way, I think you see a cure for double-mindedness. And so we're going to jump into the book right now. And, and we're going to start at the introduction because we need to define what double-mindedness is. And that will help us as we move forward. When we come to the beginning of the book, 
It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And another way to say steadfastness is endurance or perseverance. I'm going to say endurance. And let endurance have its full effect. Finish the trial strong. When you're tested, when you're tempted, finish strong. And when you have finished, when you have endured, you may be perfect and complete. Perfect could also be translated mature. You will be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. The sign of us being strong in our faith, being mature believers, is that when we are tempted, we don't fall. And so, so this, I mean, this is simple, right? Hopefully none of you are blown away by this moment. But then you think, but what happens when I fall? What should I do? Oh, we're going to skip. No, we're not going to skip this. This is a great example. Okay, everyone, I'm a little discombobulated. I had a good morning spiritually, but it was rough. Okay, I'm going to talk about what endurance looks like before we talk about what endurance doesn't look like. Last night, Jess ironed my clothing. Jess made dinner. Jess cleaned up after Lucy made a mess because I was sermon prepping. And there was a point in the night where I said, Jess, I, I need you to just go up, rest. I'm going to do the dishes. And she said, I got it. And I said, Jess, you are doing so much for me. Can I show you I love you by doing the dishes? And, and this might seem like a simple thing, but let me tell you, um, in our household, we have not had a dishwasher. Um, and it has been the biggest trial of our marriage. And I say that kind of jokingly because what the trial is, is I tell Jess, I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to show you I love you. And Jess says, okay, when you do the dishes to show me you love me, make sure you finish the dishes and make sure you put them away. Because if you leave them out on the drying rack, we have kind of a janky kitchen counter. Um, The water just kind of seeps out and it just makes these pools that then in the morning she has to clean. And then she has to put all the dishes away. And so then instead of feeling love that I scrubbed everything, she's like, he didn't finish. I'm really good at doing 80% of the work. And so last night, to endure, there was a moment where I was about to dry this pan. And look at that. Look how bad of a job I did. And so I scrubbed it off, and then I sat in the drying rack and went, I need to go to bed. And I started to think, you know what, I'm going to go to bed. And then what I thought wasn't wasn't very holy, because I was like, well, I've got to get sleep if I'm going to preach tomorrow. Um, And then I felt really convicted, not about, oh, I didn't finish the dishes, but about, I told Jess, I am going to show you I love you by doing this. And then I was tempted to say, you know what, even though I love her, I love myself a little bit more. I love my sleep a little bit more. I also will tell you, I could have done the dishes earlier, but I was working on learning how to play Among Us better so that I can impress our students the next time we play together um, because I was really bad last week and I'm ashamed of it. So, so I, I had choices. But, but in the end, I, I went and I scrubbed and I cleaned and I dried everything off. And then I saw, and Jess, I'm just looking at you right now, I tried to get the thing off the stove, but I couldn't figure out how to scrape it off, so I did my best. But I did everything else. So I did like 98% of what, so hopefully you feel 98% love. But the, the point of this is that the temptation to not endure and to not love my wife the way Christ loves the church was strong last night. But I know because I've talked to other believers who've said, man, Matt, that doesn't sound like you're really loving her. I want to rationalize it. But that's, that's wrong. And so last night I actually endured in my faith. And it sounds so simple, but it wasn't. 
If you struggle with endurance, James Jacob gives a simple response. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So if you're not able to endure temptation, if you fall to a trial, what's the solution? Ask God and he'll help you. Simple. Almost too simple. Almost like James is setting us up for something else. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So if you, if you fall to a trial, if you fail to endure, you're supposed to ask God. And then God's going to give you what you need to endure. But if you have to ask God because you failed, it's because you lack the requisite faith in order to do it right. And if you lack the requisite faith in order to do it right, and then you ask God for faith, but you have doubts, you're not going to get anything out of it. So the starting point is, if you have faith, you're good. If you don't have faith, you should ask for faith. But if you don't have faith, you're not going to get faith if you ask for faith because you don't have faith. I'm serious. This is the point. This is why Martin Luther reads this book and says, I don't see the gospel in this at all. But there's a point to all of this. And and you might think, well, we just need to read a few more verses. Because certainly, Jacob is going to tell us what the cure for this double-mindedness is. The cure for this lack of faith. I know I lack wisdom because I fall all the time. I know I'm double-minded. So I just need to go one verse further and he's going to tell me exactly how to work through this. Let the lowly brother exalt boast in his exaltation and he doesn't he doesn't at all the first eight verses of the book of jacob present this problem if you're a mature believer and you have faith you're good if if you're a believer who struggles and who doubts you need to to ask god for faith but if you doubt you're not going to get the faith you ask for kind of bleak because I know I'm double-minded. I know I'm double-minded and if I'm double-minded and if, if, if this is true, it means that I on my own will never get out of it. And it's also saying if I pray to God, God help me get out of this, but my faith doesn't match that, it says that God's not going to help me either. It's in the Bible. Martin Luther didn't get it thrown out. He tried Later on, he said, it's good proverbial sayings, but I don't understand why we'd put it in canon. I do, and I'm going to show you in a minute. But what I need to explain to you is that there's a, there's a very simple reason for this. When Jacob wrote this book, what I think he was doing is I think he was making an ancient WebMD for double-mindedness. If you, know, if you don't know what WebMD is, I found out yesterday they don't have WebMD in Italy so I don't know how they tell when they're sick, and I don't know how they misdiagnose themselves. Um, I, I was quarantined for two weeks, um, and when I started my quarantine, I was texting my doctor. Jess and I are blessed to have a doctor who gave us his personal cell phone. Um, poor guy. Um, he gets a lot of weird texts um, about Lucy and about us. But, but um, So I'm texting him, and then I go in and I get tested for COVID. Comes back negative. But I have, like, all the symptoms And I Googled it, I promise you, I Googled it. I looked at WebMD, I had all the symptoms, so I wanted it to be the diagnosis. And then a week later, I still had all the symptoms. So I went in and got another test. And at the end of that test, you know what the the end result was? I was still negative. But I was like, well, I've read WebMD. (laughs) I I know what I had. 
And then I went and met, met with my doctor, and he was like, no, no, let's just calm down. And I was like, but didn't I have it? I was actually sitting in the, the room with him, and I kept saying, but couldn't it be? But couldn't it be? And he's like, oh my gosh, Matt, just stop. Just stop. He's like, I know more than you. But, but the, the point of this is that the book of Jacob is like WebMD for double-mindedness. The whole book. This is my deep conviction. This is why I have such a complicated relationship with this book. Because this book, throughout the whole book, is going to diagnose where you're double-minded. And when I was growing up, when I was 16 working at a camp, struggling with things that at that time made me feel so much shame. I'm a camp counselor working with kids, telling them about Jesus. And then I have all these struggles and I feel double-minded and I'm memorizing this book. And every time I work on memorizing the book, I just think, I wish I could endure better. And I pray to endure better and nothing changes. And just like Lilia, I, I held it alone. <laughs> and I held it alone and I held it alone and nothing changed. We're going to have fun with this, I hope. Um, but Jake O.B., would be how I would do this. So I'm going to walk you through double-mindedness because even though Jacob talks about it, he does not spend a lot of time defining it out except to say, you are. But what double-mindedness is, double-mindedness is caused by an internal battle between our worldly mind and the new mind that we are given when we become believers. This is what we've been talking about all year. Ezekiel, we're given a new heart. That acts when the, the Holy Spirit comes into us. We, 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 have this, we have this sinful nature, but then we've been made perfect in Jesus. And now it's a matter of us trying to figure out how to live as that person. And so we're double-minded because they're at war. How common is double-mindedness? Double-mindedness is a hereditary symptom that is present in those who have become believers through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you are double-minded. Let me say that again. If you are a Christian, you are double-minded. If you are a Christian out there and you think I am not double-minded, you terrify me. You absolutely terrify me, and we should talk, because at the end of our conversation, one of us will repent in a huge way. Every believer is double-minded, and, and that should be freeing. That should be so freeing, but we don't see it that way because we don't want to admit that we're double-minded. We want to spend a couple years holding on to it on our own before we hit a point where we realize it's never going away if we don't ask someone for help. You are double-minded. If you're not a believer, you are certainly not double-minded. And you may say, well, I feel double-minded too. You're not double-minded the way that Jacob is talking about. Because without the Holy Spirit, you don't have one side of you and you don't have a part of you that is working to follow after Jesus. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot do that on our own. Symptoms of double-mindedness. Failing to endure when your faith is tested. A double-minded person is someone who is not complete and mature in their faith. A double-minded person experiences anger and rage and, and lust and, and, and all, of these, uh, all of these high emotions, jealousy, envy, fear that people will find out shame. A, a double-minded person is, is a human, but a person who's living in their double-mindedness is someone who, who does not ever step out of it. Double-mindedness is I'm still struggling with the same thing that five years ago I said I wasn't going to struggle with. Double-mindedness is I thought I overcame that and then six months later, I'm right back in the same spot. That's what double-mindedness is. It's a, it's a patterned history of doing wrong. And I do it. I do it. You do it. If you're a Christian, it's, it's a part of our walk. But the, the point of this, I'm not just talking about this to tell you all, this is you, deal with it, right? And I'm also not talking to you, certainly, to, to talk about when we talk about treatment options, 
According to Jacob, double-mindedness has two cures. The first one is to have better faith. Have better faith. If you came to church every week and all you heard every week was, do better, would you keep coming here? I hope not. I really hope not. I, I think that you would be sitting there like, how? Why? Which? All, all, of, the, all of the W1s. I, I hope you would say, it doesn't just work. It doesn't just work like that. If it just worked like that, we'd all do it. If the cure for double-mindedness was, Lord, give me more faith, and then Lord gave me more faith, and then I was just good, I would be so mature. I'd be like the perfect believer, and I'm not. I'm not. I can't even do the dishes without temptation. I'm not joking about that. But, but the, the point of this first one is to just acknowledge the fact that, that when he starts, he, he's, I think at the start of the book, what he's saying is that if you lack faith, God is willing to give it but you lack the faith to receive it. The verse that I was originally going to talk about was uh, James 1, 16 and 17, where it talks about, do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. But then I have a complex relationship with the book of Jacob. But, but the, what, what happens is that the gifts from God, a lot of times we don't even know what they are because we are so double-minded that the good things that God offers us, we have no idea what to do with because we are so double-minded. And we lack the faith to not be double-minded on our own. I have been working with youth in different capacities for like close to 20 years as a, a student leader, as a, as a youth intern, as a, all, all these different things at all these different churches. And um, at every church I have been at, part of the curriculum, it, before I went to seminary, at our church, it's a huge part of our youth curriculum, is this book, the book of Jacob. And before I went to seminary and before I studied this, a lot of these curriculums, you read through these different places and the end result of them leaves you stuck. It's not the intention, but if you read this book with the wrong mindset, it leaves you stuck. If you read this book and you read about your tongue, you need to tame your tongue. Well, how do you tame your tongue? You tame your tongue. Don't play favorites. Well, how do you not play favorites? Don't play favorites. Your faith should be involved in your deeds. Well, how do you make your faith involved in your deeds? Make your faith involved in your deeds. The, the book of Jacob just presents over and over, do this. And if you're not doing it, you're double-minded. If you're double-minded, there's no solution. And then you get to the end of the book. And there's an absolutely clear solution, but it is so obscured by English. We're going to go now to the final eight verses. Jacob 5, 13 through 20. Before I jump into this, I have to say one last thing. I have a complex relationship with this book. Part of it is because when I was at seminary, the first time I ever preached in a classroom, I preached this passage, 5.13 through 20. The, the, later on, I actually preached it. I was the student council president for the grad school, and I preached it to our grad school as imploring our, our grad school, all of our seminary students who are training to be pastors and leaders in the church, imploring them to take this message to heart. And I will tell you, in what I'm about to say, I have had this vetted by theologians and by, by Greek scholars because I, when I first came around to this, I panicked because I was like, it seems like I'm just coming up with something on my own. And when I was at Moody, one of the professors I struggled the most with was the Greek professor, not because he was not a good professor. He was phenomenal, but because I was so bad at Greek. It's like Spanish class for a dead language. And you don't get to pick a name. You know, like in Spanish, you get to, like, I'm Manuel or whatever. When you're in high school Spanish, you get to make a Spanish name. You don't get to do that in Greek. 
You just memorize things and parse things, and at the end of it, you do a test, or on the test, you're hoping it's a Bible verse you already have memorized, <laughs> because then you'll just pass. Um, seriously, that's, that's what Greek class is for seminary students. Um, and then the really smart ones ruin the curve for everybody else. Um, but, but the point is, is, I've had this vetted in what I'm about to say, but it is a jump. But I also talked about how at the start of this book, the, remember Jacob's name? The manuscript there is clear. But then we have this tradition that happens. And we're about to see something similar. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That sounds familiar. Remember James 1? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials. Are you suffering in a trial? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Did you finish the trial? Sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? And it is here that everything hinges. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The word sick here in Greek carries two distinct meanings, and both of them could equally be true. It could refer to physical ailment. It could refer to you have COVID or you have cancer or you have something else. You should have the elders come and pray over you and pour oil on you. It could also just as equally mean spiritually weary. But it can only mean one, probably. And there's a specific reason. And I'm going to show you it in a second. But, but I also want to say that I know our elders do pray over people who are sick and they'll pour oil on them. And, and at the end of this passage, I'm, I'm going to say that it's not about physical ailment, but I think the act that they do is still just as valid. You see, if you go one verse further, it says the, oil, the elders should anoint him with oil. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. If this passage is about physical ailment, then what this passage means for us today is that we need to get a bunch of olive oil, we need to give it to all of the elders in our church, and we need to cut them loose at every hospital in the world, and pour oil on people and pray over them. Because then their sins will be forgiven. I hope you see that that's wrong. I hope you also see this might be why Martin Luther hated this book. (laughs) You can pay for sins forgiven. You can just have someone pray over you. The prayer of faith referred to here is when the elders pray over you. So if if this passage means spiritual weariness, we've got our cure for double-mindedness. You see, is anyone among you spiritually weary? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. If you are double-minded, the Lord is not going to answer your prayer. So what do you do? You call on someone who has faith to pray over you, and that prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, the one who is spiritually weary, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The book of Jacob is a book for believers, because when a believer starts to fall, when an eighth grade girl starts to really struggle with something, and for a couple years, she has to deal with it on her own because she doesn't think she can talk to anyone. When she reaches out, what's the first thing that happened? Well, I prayed with her, Jess prayed over her, and and her family prayed with her. And all of a sudden, something started to shift, and she realized those sins have been forgiven. And instead of living in that shame alone, instead of living in that sorrow, instead of living with her demons on her own, she was able to step out of that darkness. I talked to her last night. I just texted her, and, and here's the summary of our conversation. I said, would you ever want to go back to who you were before? Would you, would you ever, you know, like, I, like 
was it easier to try and fight for control on your own? And she's like, no, absolutely not. I don't want to go back to who I was because look how I've grown. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The, the point of this book at the start, the point of this book at the start is that when you lack faith, it's not your prayer that's going to help you grow out of that. Because if you lack faith, what are you praying to God about? God, give me more faith in something that I can't see. And, and you can say, well, that's what faith is. But, but, but the idea is I can't conceptualize faith in something that I've never believed God could help me overcome. And so I need other believers in my life who are going to say, Matt, I know you've been through that. I know you think you do enough for your wife, but you're kind of ignoring what she's telling you would show her love. And if Christ can die for his church, you, you can scrub a pan for your wife. You, you don't have to live in your pride of, well, I have to preach tomorrow, so I get to go to bed. I'm, I'm serious. It's that simple, but it's something that, that there's a longer conversation about the way I really love Jess. And, and, and the point of all of this is that we come to the end and the cure for double-mindedness, the real treatment, because the first treatment option does not work. It doesn't work. It, it would work if we could do it, but if we could do it, we wouldn't need to do it in the first place. And so we need other people in our lives that we're going to lean on, that we're, we're going to ask, I need you to pray for me. The book of Jacob is like WebMD for double-mindedness. You read through it on your own and you go, oh, I might have that. But if you've got like a huge lump in your throat, right? Like, and it's just like bulging out. You're not reading and thinking, what could be a bee sting? I haven't seen any bees lately, but you're, you're going to go to a doctor, right? Because WebMD is not a very useful tool if you never go talk to a doctor. Maybe. Okay. I thought that would get a laugh. It didn't. It's okay. Um, I, thanks. Thank you, Mark. Um, but, okay. Hear this hear this. This is, this idea is how a lot of people open their Bible in general. I'm struggling with something. I'm going to Google verses or I'm going to find something that I can hold on to, but I don't want to tell anyone. Do you, do you know before the service, I I was worshiping in, in the back and praying and I had a moment where I realized there was something that I do not want to confess. And I texted it to my mentor right away because I was like, if I'm going to ask you all to do what I'm about to ask you all to do, I need to do it myself. And I felt shame. And then I, I prayed about it. And then I, it's, it's, it shouldn't be shameful. And on the other side of it, I feel great right now. But man, man, I don't want to do that. I want to find out what I have. I want to go to the store. I want to buy it over the counter. And I, I want to, not just over the counter, I want to make sure I can do the self-checkout so no one ever knows. Right? That's, that's what we do. We like the front half of the book of Jacob because, oh, I'll just have more faith. We don't like the back half nearly as much. Now, the opposite of double-mindedness is not single-mindedness. This is where we're going to kind of land. Um, this is important because you're never going to be single-minded on this side of the grave. Paul talked about my, my spirit is willing, but my body is weak. And that there's all these different ideas tied to this. But, but the reality is, is I, some of the men of God that I trust and respect most in my life, they, they are so much further along and so much more mature than me. And do you know what they, they would say if I asked them, are you double-minded? They would say, absolutely, I'm just really good at it. And as I get older, I recognize it more, and I try and fight against it, and then I realize there's something else I'm double-minded in. I have overcome so many things in my life because of spiritual community 
only on the other side to realize, all right, now it's time to work on the next thing. But what a freeing thing to not stay in that shame. The opposite of double-mindedness is a faith that is spiritually mature. Because I've got this 34-year-old Matt who knows the ways of the world and knows how to, how to rationalize, how to not do the dishes, how, how, to, how to self-diagnose and never confess. And then I've got this spiritual Matt that, that came to life, was born when I became a believer at 10. And the Holy Spirit and Christian community have been working and growing me. And, and that person is trying to fight against this 34-year-old. That's how I think of this double-mindedness. And I, it's been heavy, so we're going to go silly for a moment. Um, this is Lucy, our daughter, imitating. It is the best. Um, Lucy imitates everything I do. Um, I've been doing hide-and-go-seek with her for like, like seven months, since as early as she would tolerate it. But just recently, she figured out she could do the same thing. Now, if I had another camera, you would see that I'm holding my phone over here, and I'm over here, and the whole time she's doing this, I can see her because she never gets the curtain over her. And it's adorable because she's a toddler, right? She's one. Um, She also, we taught her how to show you love by you lean your head on each other. Um, And so she learned that, and so now she wants to tell me she loves me. So she just leans her head, and it's the cutest thing, and she falls over if she's walking around and does it. I haven't gotten that one on camera yet. She also, this is a new one, um, we've been blowing on her food, so now she blows on her food. She blows on her cottage cheese. It's silly. It's funny. She's a toddler. It's okay that she blows on her cottage cheese. I'm going to let her blow on her cottage cheese until she phases out of it. But if she was a 16-year-old girl, and she was blowing on her cottage cheese before she took every bite, I think Jess and I would be really worried. If the way that she hides right now was the way that she hid when she's a teenager, like like we with the youth group sometimes play hide-and-go-seek in the whole building. If if she was just like, and some of our kids do that, and they're sitting out there like, well, that's what I do, but but it's alarming when you do that, students. But um, the other thing, right now, the main way we communicate is by silly sounds. Um, I will just make a sound over and over. I'll go, ka, 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 and eventually she'll look at me, and she'll go, and then she'll start to make the ka sound, and we've just been working through the alphabet together, and she's got most of it, but she does not communicate with words. She communicates with sounds right now, and it's super adorable. But I hope and pray that when Lucy is 16, the main way we communicate is not buh, buh, and pfft. Like, I, I really hope that. And it's adorable when you see this in a toddler. It's adorable when she comes into our house and we've got a, a floor lamp, and she starts rocking it, and we have to take it away from her, and she gets mad, and we laugh because it's like, of course you're mad because you can't do something. But, you know, it's, it's, she's a toddler, If she's a 16-year-old, we're going to be mad. When you go to the store, if you're not the parent whose child is having a meltdown, which hasn't really happened since COVID as far as I know, but when you have that toddler who's like, I want that candy. I want that thing. And they're getting angry in the aisle, like in the checkout line. And that mom looks so embarrassed. I think most other people are sitting there with it. When it's a toddler, you're like, that's so cute. I feel bad for that mom. But the little kid, it's just funny, I think. I haven't had to deal with it yet, um, and so someday I probably will have a much different side of this. But, but the point is, is it's funny, but when you go into a store and you see a grown man screaming at a cashier, it should be this price. It's not nearly as funny. 
And if you saw a grown man yelling at his wife, I want that candy bar, I hope you'd be concerned. Maybe enough to take action. The point is, it's really cute when a toddler acts like a toddler. But spiritually, if we're toddlers, and if we stay as toddlers, that's, that's a bad sign. You know what a toddler doesn't want to do? They don't want to confess their sins. They don't, like a, a spiritual toddler wants to say, I'll handle this on my own. You don't think I can pull that glass off the table because it'll break? I will show you you're wrong. Right, that's, that's, that's what a toddler is. The, the book of Jacob is an invitation to admit your spiritual immaturities. Because trust me, if you read through this book, on the other side of, the, on the other side of reading through this book, you're not going to say, I've got all that covered. And again, if you do, we've got bigger problems. Okay? But if you read through the book, you're going to be challenged by how you speak. You're going to be challenged by how you act out your faith. You're going to be challenged by all these things. And the book tells you when something stands out to you, and you realize you're spiritually immature, it's a chance to invite those who are less immature to help you grow out of it. It's the chance to call an older brother or sister in Christ, someone who's further along, and say, hey, hey, I, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I, I, don't, I don't know why, and I don't know what to do about it. Hey, I, I go into work, and I sit on my phone all day. Hey, I've got to delete my browser history every night. Hey, I resent everything about my spouse, and it's a major narrative in my life. Can you help me? That's, that's what the point of Jacob is about, because those things fester. In, in, in verses 14 through 15, it talks about uh, people want to blame their sin on God. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. God goes, what happened? Adam goes, um, the woman you gave me? That's the starting point. That's what Adam says. He blame shifts it. And Jacob says, Every, uh, you cannot blame temptation on God. God's not the one who's tempting you. Temptation is something we foster. And the language he uses is we conceive it, we let it grow, we give birth to it, and then it leads us to death. And it's talking about Christians who fall so deeply away from the life we're supposed to live. That's, that's the point of this book is to say, don't let it grow. Instead, confess to others your spiritual immaturities. And here's the other side of this. The other side of this where I think this is wonderful and why I think this is worth spending time on. When you call someone, hopefully the whole book of Jacob is not a deep conviction for you. Honestly, there are things in the book of Jacob that I read and say, huh, I haven't had a problem with that. Lord, please help me never have a problem with that, but I don't, I don't struggle with that. And there are things I know other believers struggle with deeply that have never really been a problem for me. And so when they talk to me and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, I can tell them, hey, I can see how the Lord works through that. And, and, and hopefully they have things like that as well, right? And, and the other thing is, this is why we need to talk to older believers, because I talk to older believers about things I struggle with, and they say, I remember that. And then do you know what they say right after that? Here's how God worked in my life. That's the point of our stories. That's the point of our church. That's why we do small groups. That's, that's the point of being a Christian. It's to be in a community where you can tell each other, man, look how God worked in my life. Look at what I witnessed the Holy Spirit do for me. He can do that for you too. So as we come to a close, I have a simple assignment for you this week. And it's going to be hard for you to wriggle out of it because you're all stuck at home again, I think. Um, I don't know. And it's a, it's a holiday week, so none of you are working Friday. You probably can't go shopping Friday. So by Friday, this should be pretty simple to do. Read a chapter of Jacob a day. It's five chapters. It'll, if you start tomorrow, it'll take you till Friday. Okay? Read a chapter of Jacob a day. Take notes on where you feel double-minded. 
When you read about favoritism, if right away you go, yeah, I place a really high value on certain people over others, make a note. As you get to the end of the week, look over your list, and on Friday, as you finish the book, call call a more mature believer and share with them your struggle. And I say struggle, it could be struggles. But as you make that list, when you read through that list, there's going to be one thing that you're like, "Mm, no, I don't want to tell anyone that one. That's the one. Call a more mature believer. Call your small group leader. Call a pastor. Call your coach. Call, Call someone in your life that you know is a little further along than you and say, hey. And you may think, you may think, well, everyone's further along than me, but don't be surprised if you get a call. Because there might be someone in your life who calls you. And the one thing here is on Friday, if you receive a phone call from someone and they tell you, hey, I'm struggling with blank and you've never struggled with it, your job is now to help them find someone who has struggled and overcome it. If someone calls you on Friday and says, hey, I'm struggling with my integrity in the workplace and you say, funny story, so am I. The end result is, all right, well, let's just struggle together. The end result is the two of you need to go find someone else who isn't struggling, who can tell you, here's how I overcame it. And the other side of this is you need them to ask them to pray for you and follow up with you. The end result of this is not, all right, I confessed it, now I can move on. When in June, in June, when Lilia sent that text, we didn't just say, all right, we'll pray, done. We took steps, and I I know Lilia has been meeting with a woman of God at our church, and they've been processing, and they've been moving forward, and there have been intentional questions about, hey, what you struggled with before, is that where you're still at? No, praise the Lord that it's not. How are we preventing that from coming back? That's a part of the conversation, and you can't do that on your own, because if you could do that on your own, you wouldn't be struggling with it in the first place. That's the whole point of this, and it's beautiful, and it's freeing. It may not feel that way. It stinks to have to tell someone, hey, I'm struggling with this. But it stinks even more to sit up at night, unable to sleep, because you're so ashamed and you're wondering, am I alone? Does God love me? And God's up in heaven like, I have given you everything you need to overcome this. Would you just step towards it? The biggest lie that I think people believe about their faith is if I just faith harder, I'll do better. It doesn't work. The solution is confession. It's talking to others. I, as, as I close, I want to tell you, um, early on in my, in my adult life, I, I was working a full-time job, and I, um, I was volunteering at multiple places at a church, and I saw something incredibly ugly between a couple men of God who were, who were pastors. And, and I saw it, and let me tell you, the, the end result of it for me at the start was I can never trust a pastor again. I watch what's happening out here with, with all the pastors who have fallen recently, and it breaks my heart in so many ways. And what breaks my heart most is I think about 20-year-old me who almost walked away from the faith because my faith at that time was not in God. My faith was in men of God. And when I saw this ugliness between these two pastors, I was so angry. And then a man of God and a woman of God who I had relationships with, the, the woman of God one day said to me, and I will never forget it, she said to me, if you put your faith in them, even if they live their best life their whole life, you're going to be so disappointed because your faith is in something so far less. 
And, and from then on, I, I've struggled in, in relationships with pastors and relationships with leaders. But on the other side of it, whenever I start to struggle, what I've learned from older men and women of God is they say, why on earth are you putting your faith in anyone but God? You lean into this community to help you grow in your faith in God, not in your faith in other men. And so I, I need that. And I think all of you need that. And I want to challenge you, if at the end of today, if you go home and you don't talk to anyone about anything you're struggling with, if you don't do this, if you don't do anything, you're going to be in the same spot five years from now. There's going to be no transformation if you're not willing to take a step. I praise the Lord for Lilia. I praise the Lord for her story. I praise the Lord. That happened in June when our youth ministry was in the middle of a whole bunch of random, like we did Zoom calls where we went through the book of Samuel. It was super fun. I loved it. I don't know how we, by the end, we had like five kids showing up because everyone was like, oh my gosh, this shelter in place needs to end soon. It wasn't off the back of a spiritual high retreat. It wasn't off the back of, Matt taught the perfect lesson at youth group and Lilia was just like, oh my gosh, I got to take action. It was in a random season where we were about to shut down because we were going to start up something new in July. And Lilia just sends this random text because she responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and now she's declaring her story to the church. I pray that for each and every one of you. I pray you will not stay where you're at because you don't have to. The promise of the book of Jacob is that when I lack the faith to get out of my sin, the community is going to help me to grow if I will turn to them and that sin will be forgiven. And praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that in our immaturity and in our inability to recognize the good and perfect gifts from you, we thank you and we are so thankful that you have given us the tools to not remain stuck. Lord, I, I pray that for each and every person here that um, we would not leave today and just go back to life as normal. I have already texted someone to s- confess something because I, I, your spirit has been working on me all week as I prepared this message. Lord, I, I pray for each and every one of us that, that we would recognize our need for you and our need for a community that helps us better understand and identify who you are. We thank you that you do not leave us alone, but we recognize we need to step towards you. We pray your spirit would help us to take those steps. We praise you for the stories we've heard this year of people taking those steps, and we pray that we would see more and more. I pray for Friday for, for, that people would make calls, and I pray that they would make those calls with boldness, knowing that the person on the other line, I cannot imagine um, any semi-mature believer receiving a phone call and just saying, nah, because, because I know that our desire is to help each other grow. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be a distinctive mark of our community and that we would move closer and closer to you in maturity, and that in our double-mindedness, we would reject falling back to the ways of the world. We would reject sin, and we would become more and more mature, that we could stand and endure for you, that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, as you go today, um, make sure to talk to someone. Make sure not to go alone. Make sure... Make sure by the end of this week that that you haven't just stayed where you are because it's much better to move forward in Christ. Go in peace.